sen voi. Auringon raita, kultaili maita, välkkyen laineet saimaalla löi. Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is Hell, streaming live and podcast shortly after during the week at thisishell.com. The world broadcast premiere of every week's This Is Hell airs Saturday mornings at 9 a.m. on Chicago Sound Experiment, WNUR 89.3 FM. You can also hear This Is Hell in an abbreviated one-hour version weekly on Radio Free Moscow in Moscow, Idaho, and on CKUW in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, the community radio station of the University of Winnipeg. We air twice every week on Lumpen Radio at lumpenradio.com and thrice weekly on the UK-based online radio outlet Beware, which you can find at bewaretheradio.com. If you would like to hear This Is Hell on your favorite local public radio station, email us at chuckatthisishell.com or contact your local station and tell them why you enjoy listening to This Is Hell and why you'd love to hear This Is Hell carried in your community. We live in an age of crisis, and not only one crisis, but many crises. Of course, there are the constant crises of war and poverty that destabilize our world. And with everything being globalized nowadays, that instability can spread quickly. There's also the spread of viruses that can become pandemics, like the one that still plagues our world today, evolving into new variants that are relatively immune to vaccines we've already developed. Then there's the rise of authoritarianism that threatens what semblance of democracy we do have. And there's climate change, which is a danger to the entire planet and all of its people. Some argue, as our guest does today, that the cause of what ails all of us is the constant pursuit of economic growth. And if economic growth got us in this mess, then maybe degrowth can get us out of it. In a few minutes, we will continue our conversation on degrowth and the economic thinking that dominates us when we speak with Andrea Vetter, co-author of The Future is Degrowth, a guide to a world beyond capitalism, which she wrote along with Matthias Schmelzer and past This Is Hell guest Aaron Van Stygian. Andrea is a transformation researcher, activist, and journalist using degrowth, commons, and critical eco-feminism as tools. In 2011, she helped organize the Beyond Growth Conference, and in 2014, the Fourth International Degrowth Conference in Leipzig. Her theoretical as well as her practical work focuses on feminism, conviviality, and buen vivir, that is, good living or the good life. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live-streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Sebastian Vupper. Sebastian, how was your weekend? Uh, Not great, huh? Yeah, it's it's one of these weekends where I really felt that I have three different jobs because... You do? 
Yeah, I have <laughs> I have three different different jobs, and also I have I mean I I am the one who takes up the extra shift, you know, in the household. Mm -hmm. Um, so technically I have four different jobs. Mm. Um, one is keeping uh the the household in ship shape, um, cleaning up after three cats and everything. Yes. Um, yeah, and, uh, so this weekend I was just kept busy because one of my, one of my bosses, who was not you, uh, <laughs> just kept hammering me with emails. Was like, here's this and here's that. You gotta do this. You gotta do that. Why haven't we done this and that? And it was just like, we had like four, three weeks to do this. Why now? Do you get a warning every time on your uh, cell phone when you receive an email? Yes. Ugh. That's another reason I don't have a cell phone. <laughs> oh yeah, I, I, you have it pretty pretty well there. Yeah, and then because and, be, and because I, I was just so swamped with work, I did not end up going on uh, the Chicago City River Cruise no. on Friday because I was just so just, busy. Yeah, just so busy to the point where I started having basically panic attacks, um, <sighs> thinking about having to leave the house uh, and and not have the entire evening to dedicate to more work not so, the right mindset to be on when you're on a boat tour of yeah, chicago architecture yeah not really and so it's another weekend that made me realize that um catchphrase this is hell yeah for the second time in the past three weeks sebastian my non-wife and i went for a walk in the forest glen forest preserve and saw something we did not expect and i gotta ask you about it was it a turtle no, it was not a turtle, though we did see many turtles. What we did not expect to see in the woods during our lovely little hike is someone in the woods walking their cat. The first time it was just some guy drinking a beer, watching his cat slowly explore the outdoors. <laughs> that makes sense. But on Saturday, we saw someone walking their cat in the woods on a leash. Now, mm. I have no idea if walking your cat is a new trend, but I can tell you my cats would not put up with being on a leash, and our guess is being in the woods would terrify them. Sebastian, would your cats put up with being on a leash or going into the woods? Uh, two out of our three cats uh, have been put on leashes. And it um, worked? And, it's, and it kind of, I mean, it kind of worked, but again, uh, uh, not again, that's the first time I'm talking about this. Uh, anyway, um... When we put them on leashes and let them explore the great outdoors, that usually only happens at my uh, mother-in-law's place up in the Upper Peninsula, um, where they have a big fenced-in backyard where the worst thing that can happen is either uh, an inquisitive crow or, like, um, maybe a mean-spirited stray um, that, that, that could come and uh, ruin their day. Um, but other than that, it's, it's fairly uh, tame. So we're not taking them out into the woods or anything you just say you're just putting them outside yeah yeah basically um and they're i don't know like they it's very funny if you put a like if you put a, a harness on a cat because they they just it's just the way that they walk it's yes. just very very funny um i have seen however uh people in chicago walk their cats um i once like a couple of years ago five six man time what what is it even um yeah that must have been like six seven years ago Man, I'm getting old. Um, I saw a woman walk her cat in uh, Washington Square Park outside of the Newberry Library in uh, in the Loop. 
Uh, no, in the just in the north, near north side, I guess. Right. Not, not in yeah, the, like the Bolmish area. That's crazy. Yeah. That's yeah, crazy. Yeah. Somebody would be downtown walking their cat. Yep. The weirdest thing I think I've seen so far living here in Chicago when it comes to having your pet is when uh, the woman showed up downstairs uh, here, uh, we're above Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago. Uh, in the bar downstairs, I saw a woman come in pushing a stroller with a duck in it. A duck? <laughs> yes. An emotional support duck. I don't know. I mean, I know there's a woman in the neighborhood who has a couple of missing teeth and drives a bike with a lot of... I mean, she's not a bag lady. She lives somewhere. Um, mm. But she she pushes a bike with a, a colorful parrot on it. Yes. I saw a, a guy riding... Or uh, Is this an old, small Asian woman? Yeah. Yeah. I just saw her on uh, Saturday. We were walking in the park right behind my house, and she had on her bike, she had a basket, and on the basket, and inside the basket was one parrot and then another one, yeah, like, yeah, with yeah. a blinder on it so it oh, wouldn't go fly away. That's new. Had It, it was on the, on the edge of her basket. That's crazy that I didn't... Yeah, that was, that was something I had, did not expect. All that said, Sebastian, please share with us, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? Uh, this week's question from hell, 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 fresh off the presses, presses, presses. <laughs> <clears throat> with gas prices and European currencies in free fall, where is your next vacation taking you? With gas prices and European currencies in free fall, where's your next vacation taking you? Everybody knows the answer to that question. It's the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever this is hell swag you want the t-shirt the this is hell t-shirt the tote bag the face covering the face mask the coffee mug the trucker's cap the winter beanie or toque if you prefer as well as the this is hell guide to the 21st century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s you can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to this is hell.com and clicking on support please show your support for completely listener supported this is hell remember without you we got nothing you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our facebook page facebook.com slash this is hell radio you can tweet it at us at this is hell radio or you can email it to either of, of us at chuck at this is hell.com but we must have your uh, answer for that by the end of this week's show when we are announcing this week's winner following jeff dorch in the moment of truth brave enough to be streaming live dumb enough to be goofy stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover this is hell and sebastian has this week's hangover cure don't forget to breathe there i know <laughs> This week's hangover cure is spiritually connecting with your alcohol while drinking. I mean, they don't call it spirits for nothing. Uh, The Daily Mail, known for printing BS, uh, regularly ran a story with the headline, Is this the cure to your hangover? Psychic medium insists spiritually connecting with alcohol before drinking it prevents her from being sick the next day because she, quote, clears out unwanted energy. Sounds a bit like going to Scientology. Yeah. Um, a summary of the story states, Nicole Marilyn, a psychic medium based in Seattle, Washington, shared a series of TikTok videos. Why is it always TikTok videos? I know. Days? It's really driving me crazy. The three things she does every time she drinks alcohol. First, she places a protective shield or rose around her aura. <laughs> uh, she then, quote unquote, grounds her drink to clear out any unwanted negative energy. Spiritual grounding or earthing is an attempt to bring mental and physical balance by connecting with the earth. Okay. 
finally, she sets an intention for drinking and sends it, quote, into the drink while stirring three times to the left. Okay. Marilyn advises repeating the second and third steps, spiritual grounding and setting an intention for drinking before every drink, saying it will help you wake up hangover free after a night of drinking. It'll probably also make your OCD really bad. Uh, There was a mix of uh, believers and skeptics among the viewers of her TikTok videos, with one critic calling the energy clearing practice unfounded BS. That makes this week's Hangover Cure spiritually connecting with your alcohol, which may or may not be complete, uh, yeah, BS. <laughs> yeah, it just reminds me of how over at Leland Liquors at Western and Leland Avenue in Lincoln Square neighborhood, it says, uh, Leland Liquors, we cater to your spiritual needs. So I asked the guy who owns the place, Chris, I said, what do you mean you cater to my spiritual needs? And he said, you know, real spirits, the kind you can hold in your hand or put in a bag and throw in the back seat of your car. Not that BS you learn in church. And now a word from our sponsors, and as we are completely listener-supported, our sponsor is you. I wanted to make sure that we got to this email before we spoke to Andrea because it has to do with our topic today. Gretchen writes us at Chuck at com. Gretchen writes, Hi Chuck, long time, first time. I really enjoyed your recent interview with Matt Huber on his book, Climate Change is Class War, but his answer to the question from hell inspired me to write in. I felt like he was presenting a straw man argument against degrowth. Granted, I'm not an expert on the subject, but I read and wrote a bit, a good bit about it in classes for my master's degree in sustainability science. From my understanding, degrowth is not about austerity, and it very much understands that living conditions for most people on the planet need to be elevated. However, degrowth is concerned with the material conditions of the world, as well as the material conditions of people's lives. For example, the idea of electricity as a human right for all, as Matt Huber suggested, that's great. But if that's going to happen, we all need to be using a lot less electricity. Degrowth recognizes that we simply do not have the planetary resources to provide a global north lifestyle to people worldwide. As a fact of physics, resource use must decline, and degrowth thinkers are trying to forge paths where people everywhere can have better lives while using less. I agree with Huber that this shouldn't be framed as a matter of individual choice and that when it comes to your climate impact, how you make your money is more important than how you spend it, which I find fascinating. As someone who's trying to use my new degree to find a job in sustainability communications, it's amazing how many corporations there are out there that want to be greenwashed. Maybe if I apply for one of those sustainability jobs advertised at Amazon or Lockheed Martin, I can afford a sweet electric car and an induction stove. Thanks for what you do, Gretchen. First, uh, just to clear up, uh, a a straw man fallacy occurs when someone takes another person's argument or point, distorts it or exaggerates it in some kind of extreme way, and then attacks the extreme distortion as if that is really the claim the the person was making in the first place. Matt was critical of degrowth by pointing out the impact degrowth would have on those already living in and with poverty. He saw degrowth as something that can only be done by those who are not already poor and suggesting that the poor should engage in degrowth. To Matt, that didn't make sense, and that will likely come up during our conversation in a few minutes with Andrea. So stay tuned in as class will definitely be a subject of our discussion. Despite Matt being critical of degrowth, when I gave his answer a second listen, didn't seem like Matt was disagreeing with any of 
degrowth's premises, only that degrowth suggests something negative, and instead, he argues, that we need to emphasize benefits, not sacrifices, in what he sees as a necessary class war against climate change. Also, I'm pretty certain Gretchen is being sarcastic, not about having a sustainability communications background, but that she hopes to have the opportunity to professionally greenwash and maybe get one of those sustainability jobs at Amazon or Lockheed Martin so she can afford a sweet electric car and an induction stove. Maybe, however, as there is still no emoticon for sarcasm, you can never really be too sure. Coming up, we'll tell you what happened on last week's Patreon podcast exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell. Sebastian will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell. He will have some of your answers to this week's question from hell. And uh, we'll tell you who's going to be on the show later this week. Capitalism is the virus. This is how degrowth has been a hot topic of late. Any mention of the term on social media, as I found out, leads to detractors voicing their opposition and advocates voicing their support. What is often missed in those conversations is that degrowth is a completely different way of looking at and understanding the world within which we live. It means thinking about us and our relationship with nature in a completely new way. Here to help us grow our understanding of what degrowth is and what it can be and what it isn't, too. Andrea Vetter is co-author of The Future is Degrowth, A Guide to the World Beyond Capitalism. Welcome to This is Hell, Andrea. Hi. Hello. Hello, Andrea. How are you? Yeah, thank you very much for having me here. I'm very happy uh, to bring you also my co-author, Matthias Schmelzer, with me. Oh, Matthias is with you as well. Hello, Matthias. How are you? Hi, I'm doing very good. Hey. Thank you very much for both of you being on. In your book, let's start with you, Andrea. In the book, uh, you write that in April 2020, a group of academics in the Netherlands wrote a manifesto for a post-pandemic recovery. This manifesto, with its five demands based on the principles of a little-known degrowth movement, gained widespread attention. In this moment of insecurity and destabilization, it pushed the degrowth agenda into Dutch mainstream media and the traditional corridors of power, and it was discussed on primetime television and in Parliament. The claim uh, that the neoliberal and growth-based model of development underpins many of our current crises, including the coronavirus pandemic, resonated with many, as did the call for a strategy to reorient the conversation away from symptoms and towards underlying causes. So, Andrea, if the focus of degrowth is on the cause of insecurity and destabilization, that being capitalism based on constant growth, how can degrowth provide more security and stability than our current system, especially for the already poor? How can having less make life more stable and secure? I think degrowth is not about having less, but about having more and um, more means like um, more connections between people, more relationships, and also for a lot of people being materially poor at the moment, having also more material goods. Because I think at the moment, lots of people just accept that they are made poor of a lot of things in this capitalist system, as you said, like they are poor of money and they are poor of um, place to live and they are poor poor of having 
like they don't have any fresh air because they live on a big street where a lot of cars are passing by all the time, for example, or they don't have any time to do their um, housework or to have time with their children or their parents or their friends or whomever. Um, so I think it's really like turning around the question and stopping to accept that we um, only get such a small share of this enormous wealth that is there on this planet, but to stand together and say, no, stop, it's not okay that some very, very rich people own it all and all the others just accept to have nothing. So degrowth is about degrowing this unearned privileges, basically, and sharing widely a lot of things, a lot of goods, and also the privilege of having time and of being able to care for each other. So, Matthias, one of the uh, things that I think people have a, a, a maybe a misunderstanding about that needs to be cleared up, I think, right here at the beginning of our conversation, that is a lot of people think that or, or understand degrowth as a form of austerity. How is degrowth different from austerity? Yeah, right. Um, let me say two things. I think the first thing that is important if we start a discussion about degrowth is like, why do we have this debate at all? And I think we need to bring in the entire discussion about global ecological breakdown and the, uh, in particular, ecological, but, but also globally, socially unjust repercussions of the current growth model. That's basically the starting point. Degrowth is a global justice perspective that argues that capitalist accumulation on a global scale is leading uh, is breaking havoc to the uh, planetary systems and it's leading to collapse um, if we don't change paths very rapidly and changing paths cannot be done through what mainstream economists always argue green growth but we need alternatives and this is where the conversation then about degrowth comes in and it's very much a global justice proposal for how this can be done and uh, coming to the to the question about austerity, which is actually a topic that we we've been discussing a lot in the book, and also Aaron and I had a piece about this in Al Jazeera now, uh, last week for people who want to read up on this, where we basically make the argument that degrowth is basically the opposite of austerity. In our current system, austerity is very often invoked on certain economies as a tool to basically improve the conditions for capitalist accumulation by slashing public services, by increasing inequality, by increasing inequalities uh, by, uh, through policies that lead to uh, more wealth being, um, being accumulated by the very few. And uh, this slashing of services that we are currently seeing um, and that we, we've been seeing a lot in Europe, for example, in the context of the uh, economic breakdown caused by the European Central Bank uh, austerity policies in 2008 following, um, these obviously have huge economic repercussions um, that are really, really detrimental to the well-being of people. Degrowth, on the, on the other hand, however, is not for shrinking in general. It's rather for decreasing the overconsumption of the rich and improving the, li the living of, of the masses. 
it's for, and that's the, the term that we use for public abundance rather than, uh, than private ab abundance, with, which is often the result of austerity policies. And Andrea, that uh, manifesto that I was mentioning earlier from April 2020, it had five key policy proposals, which began with, as you point out, a move away from development focused on aggregate GDP growth. Economic growth is conventionally measured as increasing gross domestic product or GDP to differentiate between sectors that can grow and need investment, the so-called critical public sectors, clean energy, education, health and more, and sectors that must radically degrow due to their fundamental unsustainability or their role in driving continuous and excessive consumption, especially private sector oil, gas, mining, advertising, and so forth. So my first question for you, Andrea, is why is GDP growth? Why is GDP not necessarily the best metric for us to use when it comes to how well the economy is working for everyday people? Well, because it's not measuring um, the quality of a good life. It's measuring the amount of money that is circulating in a certain um, national economy. And that means, for example, if somebody has an accident with the car, that is very good for GDP because a new car has to be bought. Uh, people end up in hospital. A lot of money is spent. Um, for, for the curating of these broken people, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it's not any kind of lucky event that happened there. Um, in addition, a lot of the things that are really important for our life, um, especially care work, is not measured at all in a GDP um, because it's not paid. So the um, work, especially of women or queer people or marginalized people is um, underestimated in its GDP because it's not paid. Um, a, a lot of that work is not paid. Um, and so actually there is no real sense in making this kind of um, GDP the measurement for everything. It's just a historical um like it came up for historical reasons. And I think Matthias can talk a lot about that if you like, um, but it's nothing that should stay with us um, for the future. Matthias, just to follow up on Andrea, what she was saying, uh, one of the things that uh, you point out in the, or the uh, all of you, all of the authors of the book point out is that um, this idea of constant economic growth always being good for society that's a relatively new idea. When did this idea come about and how did we measure the economy's positive impact on society prior to GDP? Yeah, that's a certainly a very interesting topic to talk about uh, because GDP, which is the number that measures the economy, was only invented starting in the 1930s in the context of the Great Depression of the 20th century. And then basically the statistic was refined and in the, in the 1940s it became enshrined in uh, international standards through the United Nations and the OECD and other organizations. And I would describe it very much as a capitalist ideology. It's an ideology in the sense that it, it masks 
the interests of the few as being the interests of us all. Economic growth very often doesn't really lead to, uh, to the improvement of well-being. And the inventors of the statistics, like Simon Kastnitz and others, in the, 90, in the middle of the 20th century, they actually warned against using this number for political purposes, uh, for the comparison of various nations, for comparisons over time to measure well-being, et cetera, et cetera, because they knew about the shortcomings of these statistics. And somehow then in the political discussions of the Cold War period, um, this became the hallmark of what we describe as progress, of societal progress. And I think uh, that th this is also one of the main reasons why degrowth so specifically focuses on growth is that we argue that we need to, to dismantle this ideology, not just in mainstream discourse, but also in pr many progressive discourses where we have become trapped in this idea that more is necessarily better. And we argue that no, it, it's not necessarily better. We need to, to make to really distinguish and look under the surface into the um, to, to the actual economy, the material economy, to, to understand whether economic growth is actually benefiting people or not. And there's a wealth of studies that basically show that even in rich societies, economic growth has stopped to improve average person's well-being since uh, the, uh, the mid-1970s or early 1980s. So there's a, a long period of, of uh, economic progress, where we see a, a huge rise of GDP with all the ecological repercussions that are now leading to climate breakdown, a period in which average well-being didn't really improve much. And this is the topic we need to tackle um, to, to basically invent a type of economy that's not focusing on more, but rather on better and different. Andrea, in the book, it states that degrowth starts from the fact demonstrated by an increasing number of studies that further economic growth in industrialized countries is unsustainable. Even if that growth is green or inclusive or, or even as part of a transformative progressive agenda that massively invests in renewable energies and the sustainability transition, Industrialized countries cannot reduce their environmental impact, emissions, material throughput, etc., fast and sufficiently enough, while at the same time growing their economies. So, Andrea, how can we both move to alternative technologies, using alternative clean fuel sources, and not grow the economy? Wouldn't that shift to a new technology necessarily through the simple process of replacement wouldn't that necessarily lead to economic growth? How can we shift to new technologies, clean fuels, and not have economic growth? I think it's important here to distinguish between the growing of some sectors and the growing of the GDP in general as a political goal. And um, degrowth is against policies that aim at um, the growing of the GDP in general as the most important political goal. It's not against growing some sectors, as you said, for example, on the renewable energies. But as we see now, like a lot of renewable energies or also other technologies, like for example, um, electric motorization um, has a lot of problems in it. For example, the electric car industries, it's completely built in parallel to the foss fossil car industries. So we don't have now electric car industries that is instead of 
fossil car industries, but in addition to, and that of course is a big problem because it just adds more new technology, which might be environmentally more friendly, but which is just an addition. So people do have more cars at the end, which is of course not environmentally more friendly to have three cars than to have one car. And also the, um, like how this technological change is applied is not, um, like the fantasy is not enough there, like how that could look like, for example, if we have electric motorization, it would be much better to think about trains, to think about um, like electric trams for cities, about public transport systems, and to go away from this individual mobility system of the car, for example, and only in switching like whole systems, like for example, the mobility system, we could reach enough, um, let's say sustainability to use this burnout word, um, to really reduce our emissions. Matthias, you also write that Green New Deal platforms have been criticized for simply continuing rather than challenging uneven neo-colonial relationships between industrialized countries and the rest of the world. For example, and I think this follows up on what Andrea was just saying, for example, by expanding solar power and lithium battery storage technology without taking apart the unequal relationships between rich countries buying lithium and poor countries mining it, the Green New Deal may just create new problems and entrench neocolonialism. So, Matthias, if we can't use extractive resources as an energy source because of neocolonialism, do we need non-extractive resource technologies? And if so, do those energy sources exist? Are there non-extractive resource technologies that can provide us the energy that we we want or need? Yeah, this, this is really uh, going to the heart of the dilemma of the energy transition and the sustainability transition that we are facing and there's no there's no easy way out it's very it's very 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 complicated to to, to go into this and uh, there's there certainly let, let me start this way degrowth is not against um against renewable technologies solar panels uh, electric cars etc cetera, etc cetera. all these are certainly needed and we we also need extractive resources for doing this there's there's a lot of things that could be done by increasing circular models and i think uh, attacking the the private ownership model that's behind most of production could go a long way in creating public systems where uh, where, where there's true circular economy on the material sphere happening where, where we take out the old resources from uh, used up products and really use them as resources for the, the next production cycle but degrowth basically says that we should, in discussing these transitioned, transitions, we should not continue the global unequal access to resources and energy that is so entrenched in the current system. Currently, global North economies are using five to 20 times more energy than global South economies. And the current plans for the decarbonization of, let's say, Europe, but also the, the United States, they are talking about a large increase of the used energy. 
because phasing out fossil fuels, you need much more energy, for example, for then fueling electric electrically or with hydrogen um, or the, 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 the cars, et cetera, et cetera. And degrowth basically says we need to live with less energy and focus on system changes that make it possible to translate a, a, a decreasing amount of energy and resources into larger amounts of social well-being. And to do this, we need social innovations, such as Andrea highlighted with the example of instead of only focusing on shifting all individual cars uh, to electric cars, to at the same time also focus in, on reducing the need to have cars, to own cars by improving and really building or rebuilding public transport systems all over. And along these lines, one can think of in social innovations in other sectors as well. And this is the, 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 the core focus. And by the, by, by, through these measures, we can actually start to imagine a world where in 2050, global access to resources and energy would be equalized globally so that a global South countries would have an equal or more, more access to, to the needed resources and energy that they obviously also need for their sustainability transitions. Andrea, you also point out in the book that while at first sight it appears that there's a stark opposition between the more transformative leftist Green New Deals and degrowth, there are many overlaps and similarities that there is a wide scope for learning from each other and for collaborations, and that degrowth offers an important corrective for existing Green New Deal proposals. So, Andrea, in your opinion, are Green New Deal proposals and degrowth, are they in competition with one another? And is the Green New Deal just a watered-down version of degrowth, one that is more amenable to capitalism. I think that really depends on what kind of Green New Deal you talk, because there's different uh, proposals of Green New Deal. And um, so I think you cannot answer to this question, like if there was one proposal of a Green New Deal. Um, I think there is certainly a lot of measures that are common to degrowth proposals and to Green New Deal proposals, but there are also certain differences. And I think this is in the um, how fast the old industries have to shrink. Um, and exactly in this question, what I said before, that it's not about just building new industries on top um, of the old, but also thinking about how could a just transition look like um, in certain regions and what does that mean for all the people um, working there, for example. I think a degrowth perspective is very much on what are what is work that is important for society and that is important for a good life and it's not about having wage work for its own sake also questioning the patriarchal model of there is one man going out and bringing home the money from the wage work but thinking about new ways of living together and sharing care work and also about reducing wage work 
hours. I think there's a lot of Green New Deal proposals that also um, work with reducing of the wage work hours, which is a very, very important um, for achieving some kind of sustainability, I think. But I think Matthias wants to add something. Uh, go ahead, Matthias. No, I mean, I mean, yeah, I, I, I'd agree. Um, so, so there's also something that we really highlight in the book is that there is a lot of scope for um, movements or um, basically proposals of a green new deal without growth. And I think in certain contexts uh, for the issue of framing that was also raised in the beginning when uh, you introduced the controversy around uh, Matt Huber and Matt Huber basically arguing that uh, degrowth should focus more on emphasizing the benefits. And I think this is very much going to the question of political strategies here. And in terms of strategy, I think there speaks a lot for degrowth not for not using degrowth as the main term for a political party or uh, like larger social movements. And this is also one of the arguments that we actually make very explicitly in the book that we are for radical Green New Deals without growth that incorporate some of the um, core proposals and perspectives of the degrowth discussion. And similarly, um, if, if degrowth ideas are taken up by other movements, by feminist movements or other transformative um, um, context movements, etc., this is great. And it doesn't need to be under the banner of degrowth, which is, cert which is certainly very complex. Um, some would argue academic. It's uh, for many. It's also an upturning, uh, downturning. It's not not a positive term. Yeah, exactly. That's it's a, it's not a positive term, and that seemed to be what uh, Matt Huber was making the point of that uh, that people would be turned off by because it sounds like you're not getting benefits. You're just uh, applying sacrifices. Uh, but that isn't the case with degrowth. We are speaking with Andrea Vetter and Matthias Schmelzer, who are co-authors of the book, The Future is Degrowth, A Guide to a World Beyond Capitalism. In the book, it states that criticism of economic growth is almost as old as the phenomenon of economic growth itself. But the term degrowth, as it is used today, can be traced to relatively recent beginnings. Andrea, if growth has always been criticized, to you, what explains why the idea of degrowth is only recent? Why at why isn't why isn't degrowth an idea that came about at the time of people claiming that growth, economic constant economic growth, is what's best for society? Why is this conversation only happening now? <laughs> That's a funny question. I mean, you can always ask why are things happening at one point and not another. Um, I mean, this is what history is all about, right? Um, <laughs> it definitely is. Uh, and you also you also state, Andrea, just real quick, I wanted to follow up on that. Uh, convivial degrowth is, you know, that is, you know, friendly, lively, enjoyable, cheerful, even jovial. Uh, that's how uh, degrowth is often described. How can degrowth, Andrea, how can it be fun when, as you quote, civil rights activists James and Grace Lee Boggs arguing in 1974 without saying degrowth but implying it, that the revolution to be made in the United States will be the first revolution in history to require the masses to make material sacrifices rather than to acquire more material things. How can sacrifice, and I know that you point towards the benefits of it, 
how can sacrifice lead to a better life? How can less stuff mean a more enjoyable life, Andrea? I mean, um, again, it's not about uh, that all people equally should have less stuff. It's kind of exactly the opposite, because as we see now, there's about 8 million, 8 million, billion, I think it's the English word, billion people on this world. And really, a lot of them don't have a lot of material stuff. And that is the basic question, you know, it's a question of, about a really global injustice in that never occurred in all of humankind in all of the 200,000 years humans are living on this planet there was such an injustice between how people can live and this is really obscene um and so i think but looking at people maybe like some listeners of this radio show that might be one of the most privileged people on this earth, maybe belonging to the upper 20% of um, income, of yearly income on this planet. Um, I don't think that all of them are necessarily um, very happy all the time and have a very good life because of the heights of their income. But I think all people would agree that for leading a good and decent life, it needs a lot more than certain material um, things. It needs meaningful relationships. It needs also a certain kind of luck we could never um, influence as humans anyways, you know, um, like the basic things of being born and living. And it also needs a mean leading a meaningful life and doing things you really think are important and not um, doing some <laughs> jobs. Um, and in this way, I think degrowth is about asking the question, like how can all people on this planet have a decent amount of access to material wealth, which is not the case now. And as a second question, how can all people also have their share in being able to do things that they think are important and to have the time to also do necessary things because as the economy is organized now a lot of the things that are necessary for a good life um, like preparing a good and healthy meal for example or cleaning often enough your kitchen for feeling good um, is not possible because there is no time um, for a lot of people. And I think the things have to change because it is not sustainable how people live in this um, world economy. So Matthias, you also point out that degrowth can be understood as an attempt to reconfigure economics. On the other hand, degrowth is also a radical critique of economics itself, a critique of economic thinking as a form of knowledge that became dominant with the growth economy, is closely interconnected with it, and stands in the way of thinking and talking about other economic and social orders freed from the logics of growth and the economy. 
So, Matthias, I guess it's a twofold question for those who do not know what you mean by economic thinking. What is economic thinking? And my question on top of that would be, do we recognize that we are engaging in economic thinking? Sure. Um, so we, we talk about economic thinking basically as the core discipline of economics. And the power of this discipline, uh, which this discipline has um, over society and policymaking. And it's it's an interesting story to look at um, how in the post-war era of the last 70, um, 70 years, we see an increasing um, dominance of economists and economic ideas in policymaking, um, which is also linked to economists claiming that they hold the key to not, to not to manage what is the core goal of society, economic growth. This, the, these are the experts of, um, of actually bringing about this, this core goal. And uh, this goes so far that um, currently, if you look, for example, at the uh, United Nations climate debates and the, uh, the climate scientists um, bringing together the best of state-of-the-art knowledge about um, climate knowledge in the IPCC reports that are coming out every couple of years. In these reports, in the chapters of on global development, you'll see that because of the dominance of economists and mainstream economists in the of the neoclassical variant, they all calculate in all the models with continued economic growth over the next decades. Um, and this basically shows how deeply ingrained this idea is and try, trying to model global economic growth with decarbonization leads, to, leads them to a couple of very absurd proposals that, that they need to be making. For example, calculating with, uh, calculating with huge amounts of negative emissions in the coming decades that will then suck out the CO2 from the atmosphere through geoengineering technologies that don't exist at the moment and would, would use um, up a huge swathes of land of the size of India, for example. So you can immediately see that this is a lot of um, a lot of insecurity in these models. And this this basically shows the model, uh, the, the, the power of, of economists and economic thinking, growth-oriented economic thinking over these models. And degrowth basically suggests we should also take into account the possibility whether it might not be much easier to achieve climate goals if we stop the continuous continued growth in the rich nations and try to basically reorganize those economies along post-growth lines, which would both enable more rapid de decarbonization in line with uh, with climate goals and increases in, in well-being at the same time. Matthias, let me follow up on that just for a second. So how does development look different under degrowth than the way that we see development today as it's framed by organizations like the World Bank? So basically, currently, development is often understood quite synonymous with economic growth. And it's it's it describes the global path of where every nation is lead is 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 following in the tracks of um, the the first leader, which is the United States, which which the richest countries in the globe, and basically tries to emulate the same capitalist accumulative uh, extractive model of economic development. Um, and in the de the degrowth idea is basically talking about contraction and convergence. Uh, contraction meaning the contraction of global 
economic resource and energy throughput. So we need to reduce the global amount of energy and resources that we that we 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 process through the economic activity, while at the same time converging the global uses of these energies and resources. And this is the 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 central um, global justice perspective that is so so key. Um, and in some of the early texts of the degrowth literature, they talk about the right sizing of the rich nations' economies, but also the right sizing of the poor nations' economies, which often is held back at the, at the moment by unequal terms of trade, unequal ecological exchange, um, and what we describe in, in the book uh, based on other work as the imperial mode of living in the North, which, which constantly externalizes the costs of this way of living to others. Andrea, you write that far from being reactionary or against all modern technologies or conveniences, degrowth aims at democratizing the development of productive forces and social metabolism in order to achieve public abundance. And far from being about belt-tightening sacrifice, degrowth is about strengthening more meaningful and less destructive forms of happiness, new forms of the joy of life, or what has been called alternative hedonism. Degrowth is not against progress, Rather than hold, rather holding on to continuous economic growth undermines real progress. So this is a criticism that I hear of almost every alternative to capitalism, and that is that all these people want to do who are anti-capitalists is go back in time to some pre-industrial state and that we'll just return to this idyllic past and everything will be fixed. Is degrowth, Andrea, not about understanding progress as returning to some idyllic past, but about reconsidering and redefining what progress is? And if so, how would progress be different when we are no longer determining that progress with economic thinking? <laughs> That's a good question. Actually, I'm a bit skeptical about the word progress in itself. Um, but um, I think it's very important to talk about a good life as not being a form of reactionary or some copy of what life looked like in the past, because we see in different historical eras a lot of injustices as well, not only on the um, uh, talking about capitalist structures, but also talking about patriarchal structures. Um, which also ex exist without capitalism, for example. And um, I think here it is a lot about, if you want to keep on to the word progress, uh, about thinking about forms of, of life that really enable people to acknowledge their interdependence from each other and also from natural resources which is the case. I mean, we could not live if there wouldn't be trees producing oxygen for us. Um, <clears throat> and we could not live if there would not be other people producing food and preparing food and having cared for us as we have been babies and so forth. And at the same time, thinking about um, every person um, to develop like their own. Um, like what is their own purpose in life and that is now 
for the majority of people living on this planet at the moment now, it's not possible to lead such such a good life. Um, and of course, that has to do with a lot of experiment also with a lot of, as Matthias said before, um, so-called social innovation or other forms of relating to each other. And I think right at the moment we see at a lot of places all over the world um, from a lot of different backgrounds, um, people experimenting with, inspired by sometimes by old forms, sometimes by total new forms, like experimenting with other forms of being together, of organizing together, of doing economies together, of experimenting with commons, like governing together. And, um, and I think this are very interesting and hopeful processes, and they are very exciting and not at all um, looking back, but they need a lot of courage to, instead of um, clinging back like the far right is doing all the time, like saying we have to go back to some imagine, imaginary um, patriarchal model benefiting some old white men or whomever, um, but instead of really take the courage and go forth to some other forms of living together in a convivial way. And I think we can be inspired a lot by queer movements here, by um, <clears throat> a lot of anti-racist movements, by indigenous movements and learn and um, think about being allies because I think there are, if these movements are really tied together with new forms of doing economics, no, it's the wrong word, um, like not only sharing ideas, but also sharing livelihoods and sharing material resources, um, there comes a lot of, I mean, we don't know what even will be there in 20, 30, 40, 50 years. We had a very interesting point of history um, where people really try to live in other ways. And I think that is very exciting and not at all backwards. Matthias. I'm very sorry for my English. Oh, no, your English is fantastic compared to my German. Uh, so we are speaking with Andrea and Matthias, and uh, they also, uh, another one of their co-authors on the book is a past This Is Hell guest, Aaron Van Sijen. Um Matthias, uh, the three of you describe the tension over the word degrowth and any negative connotations that may have, and alternatives like a growth and post growth being suggested. You write, eventually there may come a time to drop the term degrowth. They miss one of the key goals of degrowth, to tear down the cracked edifice of the hegemony of growth. So, Matthias, what happens when degrowth becomes something else and the provocation of the term, which you stress is important, and that provocation is lost? What happens when degrowth becomes something else and that provocation of the term is lost? I mean, this is actually one of the advantages of the term degrowth, that when we use the term, this provocation cannot be lost. 
So in contrast to other proposed, like other terms, such as the sustainability term, for example, which has totally become uh, mainstreamed and used for the greenwashing of capitalism, um, or also the, the, the Green New Deal concept is very open to being co-opted by, in Europe, for example, the European Commission, which is also having a Green Deal proposal and making, uh, using these ideas to basically uh, modernize capitalism along eco more ecological but still very destructive lines um, that often come go along with uh, with uh, new forms of neocolonialism and neocolonial resource dependencies etc and degrowth on the on the other hand is very immune to such cooptations um, and this is i think one of the, the 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 reasons why we stress that for the moment because most political uh, proposals that we see in the arena um, where people discuss climate uh, just futures, most of them actually do incorporate growth to some degree. And until this is not overcome, we see uh, we, we think that degrowth is still a useful term. But eventually, um, th this might change, and um, this might change specifically for the reason that economic growth is a very useless measure. And obviously, for this reason, also degrowth in the end, um, if we understand it narrowly as the opposite of economic growth, is also a very useless measure. In the end, it's about, about very substantive, substantive things about uh, sustainability targets and social targets and, and, and the ways to achieve these. I've got one last question for each of you. We have been speaking with Andrea Vetter and Matthias Schmelzer, who are co-authors of The Future is Degrowth, A Guide to a World Beyond Capitalism. Their third co-author in this book is past This Is Hell guest Aaron Van Sijen. You can find our interview with Aaron by searching, uh, going to thisishell.com and <laughs> searching on his last name, V-A-N-S-I-N-T-J-A-N, another conversation that we had on degrowth. One last question for, well, let's start with you, Andrea. Our final question uh, for all of our guests, I promise, is what we call the question from hell, the question we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. So, Andrea, let's start with you. It, it sounds as if all the problems with capitalism are caused by its dependence on economic growth. What would, is it possible, Andrea, to have capitalism without all of the problems that economic growth causes. Can we can capitalism exist? Can it remain after degrowth? No, it can't. And why should it? We are all happy to overcome it at one point. Nobody wants capitalism back. Now, that is a great answer from hell for a question from hell. And, Matthias, <laughs> I got uh, my question from hell for you is... Is is opposition to degrowth, in your opinion, an indicator of wealth? Do you think that people oppose the degrowth movement because of the feeling that their own wealth, their own material goods are threatened? I think there's different forms of opposition to degrowth. There's certainly the, the privileged form of opposition to degrowth, which is very much a defense of certain privileges. 
But there's also other forms of criticism of degrowth, which I find fine interesting, which come more from a shared perspective of how can we actually overcome the, the multiple crises that we are facing around capitalism and sustainability. Um, in particular, there's also skeptics from the global south, which I very, uh, value very much and with uh, whom we are in close conversation also throughout the book. Thank you so much for being on our show. Andrea Vetter is co-author, along with Matthias Schmelzer, of The Future is Degrowth, A Guide to a World Beyond Capitalism. Thank you so much for continuing our conversation on degrowth, which we've been having on the show now for at least five or six years. And uh, this is an incredible addition to those conversations that we've had. Thank you so much for being on the show with us and enjoy the rest of your week. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you very much for having us. The question from hell was quite nice, actually. <laughs> I know, I know. It was way too nice. I should have tried <laughs> something else. Thank you, Andrea. I really appreciate it. Take care, both of you. Okay. Live from the United States, where, like I said, capitalism is the virus. This is hell, if that conversation with Andrea and Matthias. On the future of degrowth, if that was in some way enlightening or made you realize that, yes, this really is hell, show your appreciation by either becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell, or go to thisishell.com and click on support and see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing. So thanks for your support. Right now, subscribers to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast get a new monologue from me and an interview from our archives, which are both unavailable online anywhere else exclusively on Patreon for subscribers. If you are a subscriber, let me tighten this thing. Uh, if you are a subscriber, uh, you know that of late we've been sharing This Week in Hell, our semi-regular feature when I share what I got out of the previous week's show, guests and topics, which is very likely not what you got out of the show, it's guests and topics. Look, nobody's the same. We all bring our own personal history, experiences, understandings, and worldviews into any and every conversation. Therefore, what we all take away from any discussion is going to be, to some degree, not the same. Who knows? Maybe you're not as bitter, blind, broke, or gap-toothed as I am. If that's the case... Congratulations. Sure, maybe like me, when you listen, you also consider the cruelty and brutality of capitalism and you wonder what can be done about it, which is something we have been doing here on This Is Hell since the very beginning of the show, way back in 1996. But what the show keeps doing for me is our guests keep revealing new brutalities and cruelties of capitalism that I simply did not recognize before, despite them existing for a very, very long time. For instance, in the past couple of weeks, historian Steve Fraser has described how the Supreme Court is not only intentionally undemocratic, but it's purposely anti-democratic in its apartheid-like support for the interests of the wealthy. Sociologist Dorothy Roberts explained that social caseworkers alongside the police often mistake poverty for child abuse when the real source of child abuse is capitalism. Yes, capitalism is child abuse. And when we spoke with James Wilt about his book on a socialist response to big alcohol, it revealed my own hypocrisy in condemning the harms of alcohol shortly before we would have an anniversary party at a bar where big amounts of alcohol would be consumed. Capitalism, I argued, makes hypocrites of all of us, as capitalism makes it impossible to live up to our moral standards and survive. And then there were our talks in just the last week with law scholar Daniel Medwood and how the myths of American exceptionalism and innocence 
creates a very unforgiving and racially biased justice system that does not prioritize truth when it comes to guilt and innocence. Geographer Matt Huber's argument that climate change can only be stopped through class war, and as the wealthy have been launching an assault on the rest of us for quite a while, it's time to fight back. An investigative journalist, Boyce Upholtz, a frightening look into the present and future of the next inevitable pandemic is being ignored by a media and public that seemingly learned nothing from COVID-19, all of which has led me to the conclusion that apartheid, child abuse, hypocrisy, disinterest in the truth, class war waged solely by the wealthy who are destroying the planet, and an unwillingness to learn any lessons from the ongoing pandemic that may challenge that system, altogether combines and recombines into the most virulent disease, the pandemic we need to protect ourselves against the most, and that is the pandemic of capitalism and its destructive effects on all of us. At least that's what I've been getting out of the fun-filled This Is Hell lately. How about you? Feel free to email us at chuckatthisishell.com and tell us what your week in hell was. And if you do, we'll likely read it on air. And we shared what I recently mentioned was the most hellish thing that has happened to me in the 26 years This Is Hell has been on air. And that is, I did a five and a half hour show in December of 1999 during the Battle for Seattle protests at the WTO. During that last half hour, we were speaking with author Paul Roberts, most famously known for a couple of books he would write a few years later, The End of Oil and The End of Food. He was on the show back in 1999 to talk about a front-page Harper's Magazine article that he had on the power of big sugar in not only Florida politics, but nationally in the United States, too. It's a great article called The Sweet Hereafter, and it's easy to find online when you search on that title, The Sweet Hereafter, and Paul Roberts. But the conversation was hellish for me because after only having 45 minutes of sleep the night before and then doing more than five hours of completely uninterrupted commercial free talk radio, no matter how much coffee and RC I was drinking, I could not stay awake and I passed out in the middle of the interview. When I woke up, Paul had just finished his answer to whatever my previous question was, because I couldn't remember, and I looked down at my notes and saw that my finger was pointing at a question, and I just read that one without missing a beat. In fact, I had pushed myself so hard in doing those interviews and doing that show, five and a half straight hours of commercial-free, completely uninterrupted radio, that after going home and taking a nap, I started feeling weird aches and pains in my chest and on my back, and I discovered that I had contracted shingles and at an age, a young age, that you are not supposed to get shingles. But the only way you can hear all that, plus have access to over 200 past Patreon podcasts and a special secret code word that gives you discounts on all of our merchandise at thisishell.com when you click on support, is by showing your support for a completely listener-supported radio and becoming a subscriber at patreon.com slash thisishell. Sebastian, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding so far. This week's question from hell is, with gas prices and European currencies in free fall, where's your next vacation taking you? Uh, David S. replies, I'm headed for Uranus. Oh, Jesus. SLS. Uh, <laughs> what? Wow. 
All right. <laughs> what did you expect from all this? Yeah, I know. Exactly. 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 SOS replies. A lot of deep thinkers. I might travel to the other end of my flat. Good times in England. <laughs> That's we're, all they want. Yeah, we're, we're, we, are, we are very sorry. That's all our condolences. I, I've heard since Brexit, it's actually more difficult to get to the other end of your flat. <laughs> <laughs> you have to go in a different line. The French are allowed to go in there first. Chuck, too soon. Yes. Too soon. Too soon. <laughs> Benjamin C. replies, Fredonia. <laughs> all right. Mark's uh, brother's reference. All right. Donald H. replies, Ask me when my next trip happens. Might be years from now, though. <laughs> Could be. Uh, Kalen R. replies, Wherever the distress calls from billionaire bunker slaves with electric shock collars will come from, I guess. <laughs> That's the spirit. <laughs> it is. Uh, Ray O. replies, Next vacation? <laughs> uh, Vojtjajar says he's going to a town without pity. No, he's going to Calumet City. <laughs> it is the town without pity. Really? Yes. What? Why? Uh, just go down to Calumet City and okay. find out. Okay. A lot of a lot of people do not feel bad for other people. I mean, I. I oh, okay. <laughs> All um, right. Anyway, uh, Aaron D says uh, renting a car and driving to Paris. L'exchange favorable. I don't even know. He says the exchange is favorable. All right. I think. No, I, I I don't I I don't could be quite not too sure I don't know. Um and lastly Aaron D says nope wait we had that I could swear there was another one did that did that person delete their comment just now No maybe. look at that maybe who knows uh-uh. Um oh yeah no nope nope we're good we're good that's that's it for now on Facebook All right the person with their favorite answer to this week's question from Al again wins your choice of whatever this is hell merchandise you want you can check out all of our swag right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support and remember you can get all of that merchandise with a special $5 discount on each and every piece of swag if you become a subscriber to our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth. We'll have more of your answers to this week's question from hell later on this week's show. Sebastian, who is our guest on tomorrow's show? Assuming uh, that there is tomorrow's show. No, we tomorrow's show is uh, is all in the bag. No, oh, um, sweet. I mean, uh, we have rather, a producer. Yeah, we bagged Alex. Oh, uh, sweet. We, we uh, a, a team of this is hell operatives just pulled up to his house, pulled a burlap sack over his head, and um, he is en route right now to the this is hell bunker where he will be prepared for hosting, uh, not hosting, for producing tomorrow's show, which is fantastic. Alexander Jerry will be back here for the first time and since. <laughs> I was ill, so like for the first time since February, we're looking forward to having him come in. And uh, I want to thank Alex for uh, being for producing tomorrow's show in advance. As Lindsay, unfortunately, our producer Lindsay Gorey, she has come down with COVID, and uh, Dan had a family emergency that he had had uh, he had needed to attend to. Sebastian is going to be at uh, some sort of meeting for work. Richard has got work to do as well. So excuses, excuses. In a pinch, excuses. Alex Jerry is saving our ass. So who is our guest on tomorrow's show? Uh, tomorrow's guest is uh, Hadas Tier, um, who was on the show before, but I have... 
sadly nothing prepared to say about them. So uh, <laughs> you want yeah. me to tell people? Yes, please. Uh, she's going to be on. This will be her third appearance on the show. You can hear all of our interviews with her by searching on her last name, Tier. That's T H I E R. This is hell.com. She's an activist. She's an author. She was on our book on our show back in uh, November of. 2020 to talk about her book, A People's Guide to Capitalism, an Introduction to Marxist Economics. She was also our final guest before I had my medical emergency and needed life-saving surgery. She was our last guest that we had on the show back in February, and she was on then to talk about uh, cryptocurrency and why it is not our savior. This time, she returns to This Is Hell to discuss her new In These Times article, A Left Answer to inflation and for our final guest this week i don't know i'm working on it right now i've got three different people who say they can do the show and none of them are actually confirming also why are there bite marks on this pencil <laughs> oh i don't know you might want to look into that do some little dental forensics we'll also have a moment of truth from jeff dorchin coming up later this week i am your bitter blind broke gap tooth radio show podcast should, should, should you not host. read jeff Dors- uh, jeff's tease I did. Oh, would you like to read his? I've um, not seen it. Wait a minute. I have to. I have to look it up. He had. Uh, wait. He sent. He did send a tease. He did this, send a tease this he week. He did but send a tease I this week. I was too busy just, to uh, get into it. Ah, uh, let's uh, just. Tea. Okay. Wait. 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 Oh, so the, uh, uh, here's the the tease. The tease for uh, Jeff's Jeff's moment of truth. Uh, Jeff will offer the super truth tale of the capitalist who gave birth to a blue whale. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live-streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Sebastian Voper for producing, putting people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible business model. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.